Good morning. Recently, uh, several of us were sitting in a restaurant <clears throat> having lunch, and we noticed a uh, blonde come walking into the restaurant. She went over to the counter, ordered a cup of coffee, and went and sat at her table. And uh, as she sat drinking the coffee, she noticed there was one of those little peel-off things on the side of the cup that's uh, one of those prize-winning things. And uh, we saw her peel it off, and all of a sudden we saw this expression on her face, and she jumped up, and she was all excited, and she started to yell at the top of her voice, I won, I won, I won the motorhome. I won a motorhome. And she was going crazy, and everyone stopped, and everyone in the restaurant looked over, and the next thing we know, the waitress came running over, and she said, what did you say? She said, I won, I won the motorhome. And the waitress said, well, I, I, I'm sorry, but the biggest prize that's being given away is a minivan. She said, no, I won the motorhome. And she was going on and on and on. And finally, the manager came over and, the, and he said, is there a problem? She goes, no, there's not a problem. I won a motorhome. And he said, well, no, you couldn't have won a motorhome. And she said, yeah, I did. Here, look at this and read it. And the manager looked and he read it and says, win a bagel. Hey, if it wasn't a true story, I wouldn't have shared it with you. <laughs> What's interesting about the story from my vantage point is this. It illustrates something that I want you to listen to very carefully. And that is this profound truth. Though you and I may have a viewpoint or an opinion, it doesn't necessarily make it right. Though you may have an opinion or a viewpoint, it doesn't necessarily make it correct. We live in a culture today that is trying to get us to believe that every viewpoint and every opinion is equally valid despite or regardless of the evidence. And we have got to become people who understand that though we have a viewpoint and opinion, we have to always be careful that that opinion is validated by the facts or by the evidence, the objective evidence. And as we continue to address this particular question, and that is what does the future hold, it's important that we realize that we've come to a future event that will affect all Christians. The Bible, which is that objective standard by which everything must be measured from God's standpoint, Jesus said that the, the Bible or the Word of God is the truth. And he prayed that God's people would be separated from the rest of the world according to that truth. And that objective standard or um, objective measurement, we need to recognize and understand that according to that measurement, this is a true statement and it is a true fact that will affect every person who is a Christian. According to 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10, we read this. For we, speaking of believers, must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one of us may be recompensed or rewarded for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or whether bad. And it goes on, it says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord and our accountability to Him, we must persuade men. And the bottom line is this, that we must all become aware of the fact and we must be persuaded to the fact that every one of us as believers must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And that is a future event that all of us must be aware of and we must be persuaded of that truth because that's exactly what the Word of God says. Now, it's, it's also necessary at, that, at this particular point to remind us of this, and that is that only believers will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. It's only believers that will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. In order to make an appearance before the judgment or the bema seat of Christ, one must first 
believe in Jesus Christ. And there is so much confusion in our culture also as to what it takes to appear before the judgment seat of Christ, what it takes to get into heaven, so to speak, you know, what it takes, what good works do we have to do that one day that maybe God will find the things that we've done worthy enough to allow us into, into his presence after our death. And the reality about all of this is simply this. Jesus said in John 6, 29, says, This is the work of God, that you believe in him, speaking of Christ, in whom God has sent. That is the only good work that any human being can ever do to make them right in the sight of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. It says, And basically the facts are this, that you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. To believe on Christ or to believe on Jesus is to put all your faith and your trust in him. It's to look back and realize that Jesus Christ is God in human flesh. He's the Son of God who came to this earth in a bodily form, in a miraculous means, by a virgin birth. And he came to this earth in a bodily form. He was manifest by, in the flesh. It says, and he came and we beheld his glory, glories of the only begotten of the Father. He was perfect. He was sinless. And he came for the specific purpose, and he said it, he came to seek and to save that which was lost. That every human being is born with a sin defect. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And there's none righteous, no, not one. And Christ came for the purpose specifically of going to the cross to substitute his death for those who would believe in him. As a substitute for the, the wrath of God that was poured out upon him that was meant for us who have sinned and fall short of God's glory. Who have sinned and are in rebellion against God. Who yet while we were sinners, God sent Christ to die for us. The Bible says that three days later after this death he rose bodily from the grave and he's able to offer forgiveness and eternal life to all who will believe as we look back on those facts and that objective evidence. For all of us who look back and believe what God says to be true, the Bible says for whoever receives Christ becomes a child of God to those who believe in his name. Jesus said unless a person's born again they'll never see the kingdom of God and it has to do with a spiritual rebirth, Titus chapter 3. The fact that when you and I put our faith and trust in him and in him alone, the Bible says that then we are right with God and our sins are forgiven. We need to understand that because otherwise if we don't understand that truth then everything I'm about to say will just continue to confuse you as to believing that there's something you need to do that will somehow make you right with God. And that's not true. Because the bottom line is this, is that the Bible is very clear over and over and over again. It, try, it, it, it clearly tells us that the only thing that we can do to determine our destiny is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and we shall be saved. So belief determines destination. It's our belief that will determine when we die whether we go to heaven or whether we end up in hell. And it's our belief in Jesus Christ and in Him alone is what separates those two truths. Now, once we put our faith and trust in Christ, it's important also to recognize that, and we've become a uh, member of the family of God, it's important to realize that that's not the end of the program. There are many who mistakenly believe, well, I've put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ, now I can live any way that I want to live, because after all, I understand that I'm saved by God's grace through faith anyway, and it's not a, it's not a matter of how I live or how I don't live, whether I perform well or don't perform, so I can just go about my business doing anything that I want to do any way that I want to do it. And it's no wonder when we adopt such, such a mentality that the world around us, non-believers, look at Christians and say, I have, nothing, I have no interest in Jesus Christ nor in those who follow him because there's nothing about your life that's attractive. 
And in fact, if anything, I'm no different than you because we're all doing the same thing. So I guess if you're a Christian, I must be a Christian. What's the difference between your version or, or brand of Christianity and mine? And so they look at this and say, well, you know what? I'm not interested in becoming a Christian. Why would I want to become a Christian? There's nothing different about you. You know what's fascinating to me is this. Even before I, be, I accepted Christ and became, by God's definition, a Christian, well, what's fascinating was, as I looked at those who professed to be Christians, I understood, even as a non-Christian, that there should be something different about the way they live versus the way I live. And it's a fascinating thought, even though I didn't know exactly what it was that I thought they should be doing, but I understood this, that there's got to be something different about that lifestyle than the lifestyle that I led. And as I run into people today, they have, the same, they have the same question in their mind when they look at Christians and say, well, wait a minute. If you're a believer, you should live differently. If you really believe Christ and follow Him, why is it that you're doing the same thing everybody else is doing? I don't understand. And so, therefore, I'm not very interested. And you hear people all the time, they, 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 they discredit the claims of Christ because they say, well, you know what, Every, you're, all, you're all hypocrites. Interesting. See, the Bible clearly teaches that a profession of faith in Christ with no visible evidence of life change is not genuine Christianity. Did you hear that? The Bible is very clear to make sure that we all understand that a profession of faith in Christ with no life change is not biblical Christianity. You may mistakenly convince yourself that you're a Christian, but one must examine the objective evidence. You may be dancing around thinking you want a motorhome, and you didn't. You want a bagel, and that's it. And we need to recognize that. See, the Word of God is very clear, that those who are in Christ are different than those who are not. Ephesians chapter 4, as a, as an, as a, for instance, Galatians chapter 5, contrasts two ways of living. There is a way that is lived by those who don't know Christ, and there is a way that's supposed to be lived by those of us who do. And it's very clear, and it's outlined for us. And we need to recognize that. Understand this. There is a world of difference. There is a world of difference between being in Christ and being in church. And the world of difference may be the difference between going to heaven or ending up in hell. For those who are in Christ, old things pass away, and all things become new. Now what's interesting is, there's that group that thinks there's no difference in becoming a Christian and how that we ultimately live our life. And then there's another group that says, hey, you know what? Now that I've accepted Christ, God wants me to live differently, and those things that I do for Him, He's going to instantly pay me back for anything I put into that lifestyle on this side of heaven. God's going to pay 18.7% return after taxes. If I, you know, volunteer some time and do this, that, or the other thing, then God has to, somehow or another, reward me in this lifetime for the sacrifices that I'm making on his behalf. And if you don't think that's true, all you've got to do is turn on, quote, Christian television. And it's amazing to me the nonsense that's being taught that, you know what, anything you do in this life for God has to be somehow rewarded in this life by God. If you will just do this, then God will bless you this way. And it's amazing the ignorance of those who profess to be teaching the Word of God. And yet we need to recognize and understand something, and that is this. There is another viewpoint that's radically different from the first two that I just shared with you. And it's interesting that God's viewpoint is radically different because His position is nowhere close to either of those. His position abandons those ideas that say there's no consequence and abandons the ideas that if we live for Him today that somehow He'll reward us today. 
Because the Bible teaches this, that we're talking about a lifestyle that if you live now, you will receive the return later. We're talking about a lifestyle that if you do what God says to do now, that God ultimately promises one day in the future, before the judgment seat of Christ, that then he will recognize the things that we've done. Hebrews 6.10, we read these words where it says, God is not unjust, so as to forget your work and labor of love which you've performed on behalf of the saints and continue to perform. He says that he will remember and that one day he will repay. Jesus said, Behold, I come quickly and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to what he has done. When he returns, he will compensate people who had come to a faith relationship in him and then led a life that was pleasing to God. So belief determines destination, and how we live after we put our faith and trust in Christ will determine our compensation one day before the Lord. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, and we will give an account for the things that we've done in this body, and he will reward us or recompense us accordingly, and he will take care of those things at that time. Now the question for you is this, just to tell us that we will be appearing before the judgment seat of Christ would be no different than your boss sitting down with you and saying, look, at the end of this year we're going to evaluate your performance. Now I would imagine before you leave that meeting you would want to know on what basis will you evaluate my performance. You're not going to walk out and go, well, he's going to evaluate my performance and go, well, I'm looking forward to that day of evaluation without understanding how he will evaluate you. And if we're smart enough to understand that, don't you think God is even sharper than us? And he's going to tell us that we will be evaluated before the judgment seat of Christ. We will be judged before the bema seat of Christ. Therefore, we need to understand on what basis will he judge us. Several years ago, a company I was working for was purchased by a major corporation. And one of the things is they put everybody together. They sat down with, uh, with uh, those of us who were in a position of authority and said, look, you're going to run this particular division, and here's the basis on which we will review your performance or evaluate your performance at the end of the year. So they sat down and they said, look, you know what, we, we want such and such a return on our investment. We want such and such a, um, a net profit. Uh, they had specific guidelines as far as different categories of expenses. If you maintain a certain, within the guidelines of selling expenses and general administrative expenses and indirect costs, these are the guidelines that we've established for our business. We want you to stay within those guidelines. Uh, if your inventory turns so many times, if your accounts receivable stays within a certain uh, uh, guideline that they laid out again, these are the things that we will evaluate you on at the end. This is what we're going to base your performance upon. So at the end of the year, we sit down and, you know, and they start laying all these things out and, you know, I'm going, hey, well, you know what? I thought it over and I thought you should evaluate me differently. I thought you should evaluate me on the fact that, you know, there are several times I work 12 to 16 hours a day, sometimes even six days a week. And I thought maybe you should evaluate you on the fact that there are many times I even skipped lunch. And, you know, and I did dress pretty nice. Well, technically, my wife dressed me nice. But, um, but you know, there, I think that you should evaluate me accordingly. They would look at me like I was a nut. What are you talking about? We don't care if you work 12 to 16 hours a day. And I talk to athletes all the time. It's like, you know what, the bottom line is this. We don't care if you came in and you did off-season workouts. We don't care if you're here early and you're here late. We don't care if you're doing all these extra things because the basis of all the clauses in your contract are what? Numbers and performance. All that we care about is what was your batting average? What was your fielding percentage? Uh, what, was, what was the number of the home runs? What were your power numbers? What was your slugging percentage? You know what? All the rest of that stuff, you're a nice guy. Hey, you know what? The world's filled with nice guys. But we can't give you a bonus based on you being a nice guy. Your bonus clauses are all based on the fact that you met performance evaluation. 
You know, the guy for the New York Knicks, for example, that got his team in the NBA Finals, the first eighth-place seed ever to get to the NBA Finals. I just read in the paper that he had a $500,000 bonus if his team made the NBA Finals. And not only did he get a $500,000 bonus to get his team into the NBA Finals, but if he got his team in the NBA Finals, the next year of his contract, $3.5 million, was also guaranteed. So when you see guys jumping up and down because they won... There's a story behind it. We had a good friend that, that was still played. In the, he plays in the NFL. He used to get $100,000 for every sack over 10. And I, I'll tell you what, when you see that sack dance celebration, it, it's not going on only in the field, but we're talking about, I know many wives who are dancing behind the scenes going, now I'm getting what I know. I'm getting something. Hey, hey, Christmas time. Get them, baby. So, you know, there's a lot involved here. So we need to recognize and understand something, and that is that there is an objective measurement for our performance. And so as we consider this, I thought, well, you know what would be interesting is to take a look at what the Bible has to say. And you can kind of score yourself. And each one of these topics, by the way, is a study in and of itself. So I don't want to get bogged down too much, but I do want to make a point as we go through this. And as we look at these, look at these areas of life, by which we will one day be evaluated. We need to examine ourselves to see how well we're doing. You know, it's fascinating because when I talk to guys that understand their performance evaluations based on certain things, it's amazing the extra effort a guy who has 10 sacks will put in to trying to get number 11. Because if there's 100 grand riding on it, he's going to go hard to get the 11. And see, you know, as believers, we don't have the same sense of intensity or the same sense of urgency. And we really do need to adopt that mindset. We need to understand that, you know what, today may be the last day that we have on the face of this earth. And the question that I've got to ask myself, and I would hope you'd challenge yourself and ask yourself this, and that is that, you know, how well am I doing if this is what Christ will evaluate me on one day in the future? And so let's go through them. We'll go through them rather quickly so we can cover the time. Um, but, but as we look at these, I want us to understand that, that um, basically the bottom line is, is that we need to recognize and understand what it is that we'll be evaluated upon and, uh, and go from there. So now that I lost the first overhead, uh, open your Bibles and turn with me to Luke uh, chapter 14, 12 through 14. And now that I found it, you don't have to. But you can go there anyway. We touched briefly upon this the last time we were together. And it, Jesus said in Luke 14, 12 through 14, he's saying, then Jesus said to his host, he said, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, don't invite your friends, your brothers, your relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you'll be repaid. He goes on to say that, uh, but when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Notice what Jesus was saying. There's a tendency on our behalf to only do things for those who we feel can benefit us in some way. And it's pretty fascinating at how the world looks at that. Because it's always, well, what are you doing for me? Then, uh, okay, what am I going to owe you? It's interesting, a, a couple weeks ago, I took one of our customers out golfing because their company had closed down. And he was in the middle of trying to find another job. And, um, and he invited another guy who, happened not, uh, who is not a Christian. I know that for a fact and uh, doesn't make any bones about it. But he invited another one of the guys from his office to come and join us. And uh, as we were golfing that particular day, he looked at me and said, you know, why did you pay for me to golf today? 
He goes, I can't do anything for you. He goes, you know, our, our company's closing, man. I can't do anything for you. And I said, you know what? It's interesting that you thought that you would think that because there was no intent on my part to try to do something to plant a thought that maybe someday in the future you'll do something for me. But the reality of it is, is that, you know what? God does things for us, and there's no way in the world we could ever repay him. And it doesn't make much sense, but it opens the door for a great spiritual conversation with a guy who maybe had no spiritual interest, but something like that in a practical way caused him to stop and think. And see, the point that Jesus was making is very simple, and that's this. Don't buy into the mindset that the rest of the world has and only doing things for people that can, in, in return, do something for you. But he chose those who in no way in the world would ever be able to repay anyone who would invite them into their house and honor them at a banquet. He said, you do it for the poor and the crippled, the lame, the blind. He said, basically, understand, we need to be doing things for people who no way in the world can ever repay us for what we're doing. See, there is a different lifestyle that's required of a Christian that we should be outreaching people and doing things for those who have a need that in no way, shape, and form can ever repay us for what we do. I'm thinking of those who are involved with, uh, let's say, abused spouses and abused children, women's shelters, maybe children's ministries, because as we know, a child will never be able to do anything in return. But just to be available and to be there and to do something for them speaks highly of the love of Christ for others. You think of hospitals and children's, children that are ill in hospitals and visitation and other youth ministries. Think of homeless shelters and famine relief and widows and orphans. We can think of those who are involved in alternatives to abortions and the needs that they have to make sure that women choose life over death and that they have an opportunity to have their medical needs taken care of and a place to stay uh, while they have their child and a home that that child could go to. You know, there's all kinds of areas that we can get involved to help those who are less fortunate than ourselves. Think of those who are in prison. And I ran across a, a, a story I want to share with you about a woman. It says she arrives at the prison gates each weekday at noon. It says the guards wipe her through. Prison officials stop to ask her how her kids are doing or about her work at her office. After all, Joyce Page is family. She's been spending her lunch hour at the St. Louis County Correctional Institution just about every weekday since 1979. Joyce began going to the prison with her supervisor, also a Christian concerned for prisoners. When the supervisor was transferred, Joyce continued by herself, leaving her office alone with a peanut butter sandwich while other secretaries hustled off in clusters to the cafeteria. It says, each day Joyce meets with a different group of inmates, from the men in isolation and maximum security to a small group of women prisoners. What we do, she says, is up to them. Sometimes we have worship, other times we have times of testimony or singing or in-depth Bible study and discussion. I'm just there to do whatever it is that they want me to do and to meet whatever need that they have. When she slips back to her desk at 1 o'clock, one of her co-workers is usually bemoaning her lunchtime excesses and loudly proclaiming that she really will eat from the diet plate tomorrow. And Joyce just laughs to herself. She knows exactly what she'll have for lunch tomorrow, another peanut butter sandwich at the wheel of her car on the way to prison. For many, meeting with inmates every day in the middle of a hectic work schedule would be an unthinkable chore, but for Joyce, in her matter-of-fact way, sees it differently. For me, it's a real answer to prayer, she says. You see, I don't have time to go after work. I have six kids of my own that I'm raising by myself. There are things that we could be doing that one day we will be evaluated for. And as we do these things, we give God all the glory and all the credit and praise Him and not take the, the credit for ourselves. Every day at lunch, since 1979.
Another way to earn a reward is by assisting people who represent the kingdom of God. Matthew 10, 41 through 42, Jesus said, Anyone who receives a prophet because he's a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And anyone who receives a righteous man because he's a righteous man will receive a righteous man's reward. And if anyone gives even a cup of water to one of these little ones because he's my disciple, he says, I tell you the truth, he will certainly not lose his reward. What Jesus was saying in that particular culture was this, that there would be those who God would send out. And if you recall, Jesus told his disciples to go head out and that God would pr provide for them. He says, don't take two bags, just take one. Don't take two sets of shoes, don't take extra clothes. Just take what you've got on and go out and do what God calls you to do because you will learn that God will meet your needs and it will give those people whom you minister to an opportunity to meet those needs. In that particular culture, if you recall from John, the third letter of John, there was a man whose name was Geotrephes and he was rebuked by John because he would not allow Christians to minister to those who are coming proclaiming the gospel. Hospitality was a, a crucial part of, uh, and it still is a crucial part of being a person who is in Christ. Being able to meet the needs of those who are out doing what we cannot do physically, but are committed to do it for the cause of Christ. You think of those who are in full-time Christian service, those who are as pastors. When we give money, when you give money to the church, it is to support those who have committed their life to proclaiming the gospel and teaching the word of God. When you give to missionaries who are out all over the world, who are out dedicated to telling people that God loves them and that he sent his son to die in their place for their sins and to share that love and that truth with them, then as we give of these resources that God has blessed us with, we are a partner in that ministry. We're doing things where we physically can't do, but we're doing it as a partner to those who are actually getting it done. And what we need to recognize and understand in our culture, you ever wonder sometimes, Lord, why have you blessed me the way that you have? We are so blessed in this country and, and beyond belief when you compare what, what God has blessed us with physically, materially to the rest of the world. You've got to ask yourself a question, Lord, what is it that you want us to do with all of these blessings? Well, the answer is very clear. He wants us to support those and to receive those and to bless those with these financial resources and other resources that are committed to the cause of Christ and telling the world about Jesus Christ. We need to recognize that and understand that. And as we look at this, there was also a price that was to be paid in that culture for those who would open their home to those who were telling others about Jesus Christ. There was an identity that went along with that. When you invited a Christian into your home, you were identifying yourself as one of them. And there was a price that was to be paid, but they were willing to do it. And Jesus said, for those who are willing to do it, I'll tell you this, I tell you the truth, you will not lose your reward one day for doing that on my behalf. There's also a reward for those who give of ourselves without much uh, fanfare. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 1 through 4, he says, Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by men. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, don't announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by men. He says, I'll tell you the truth, they've received their reward in full right then and there. But when you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be done in secret. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. In a recent chapel message that I gave to the guys over uh, that play for the Angels, I challenged them to consider the fact that as professional athletes, so much of what they do is so public. And it's interesting is most organizations understand what good press is all about. And there's always those days where the wives or the players will make hospital visits. 
But what's fascinating about it is it's always on the schedule, it's always on the calendar, and there's always somebody there taking a picture, and there's always somebody who calls the newspaper to let them know that this is something good that our organization's doing in our community. And there's nothing wrong with any of that. That's the way this world operates. But the bottom line is this, that don't ever mistakenly believe that if we're under that kind of assumption and under that kind of motivation, that somehow God will reward us for doing those things because there's an ulterior motive. And the motive is so we get good press, we get some good pub, people think we're doing good things in the community. It has nothing to do with even the people that we're going to go meet. So it has nothing to do with meeting that need. It has more to do with what am I going to get out of the exposure that we're going to get. See, now, from God's standpoint, he tells us as his people, he says, you know what? He goes, I want you to adopt the mentality that says, you know what? I'm going to give, and I'm going to give in a way that nobody else will know but you, Lord. And this is a sacrifice that I'm making that's pleasing in your sight. There are a lot of ways to give anonymously. It was a quiet December evening on Ward C-43, the oncology unit at Georgetown University Hospital, one of the many rooms around the central nurses station. Many of them were dark and empty, but in room 11, a man lay critically ill. So the patient was Jack Swigert, the man who had piloted the Apollo 13 lunar mission in 1970. He was now congressman-elect from Colorado's 6th Congressional District. Cancer, the great leveler, now waged its deadly assault on his body. With the dying man was a tall, quiet, slender man who was sitting in the spot he had occupied almost every night since Swigert had been admitted Though Bill Armstrong, a U.S. Senator from Colorado and chairman of the Senate subcommittee handling Washington's hottest issue, Social Security, was one of the busiest and most powerful men in Washington, he was not visiting this hospital room night after night as a powerful politician. He was there as a deeply committed Christian and as Jack Swaggart's friend, fulfilling a responsibility he would not delegate or shirk, much as he disliked hospitals. This night, Bill leaned over the bed and spoke quietly to his friend. He said, Jack, you know, everything's going to be all right. God loves you and he's waiting for you. And I love you and you're surrounded by friends who are praying for you and you're going to be all right. The only response was Jack's tortured and uneven breathing. Bill pulled his chair closer to the bed and opened his Bible. Psalm 23 he began to read from steadily. Shepherd, I shall not want. As time passed, Psalm 150, Bill began. Then his skin prickled. Jack's ragged breathing had stopped. He leaned down over the bed then called for help. As he watched the nurse examining Jack, Bill knew that there was nothing more that he could do. His friend was now in the presence of the Lord. Politicians are busy people, especially Senate subcommittee chairman. Yet it never occurred to Bill Armstrong that he was too busy to be at the hospital. Nothing dramatic or heroic about his decision. He was just a friend doing all what he could do. Wow. Number four. We can earn a reward by praying to God without anyone else hearing. Matthew 6, 5 through 6, And when you pray, it says, Don't be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they've received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. You know, what's interesting to me is there's a bunch of us that don't have a problem praying in public. Public setting, oh, listen to this flowery prayer. But how many of us are committed to praying when nobody else is listening and nobody else knows? Committing to pray because we believe what the Bible teaches, that God hears our prayer, that we can boldly enter the throne of grace because of what Christ has done in our behalf. That he hears our prayers, that he listens to us, that we're encouraged, that we're commanded to pray, to seek, and we shall find, to knock, and it shall be open to us. And the Bible says that God will bless those and reward those who in secret pray for the needs of others around them. 
I'm thinking of a lady in Atlanta, Georgia. She's 92 years old. Her name is Grandma Murdy Howe. At the age of 89, as she was reading her Bible and as she was praying, committed to pray for those around her, she believed that God was leading her to write to prisoners. She said she didn't know anybody in prison, never had anybody in her family in prison, didn't know anything about prisons or prison ministry, but she felt that God really wanted her to use the time that she had to write to those who were incarcerated. So she did the first thing that she thought would be the logical way to do it. She wrote a letter to the Atlanta Penitentiary, which was the closest prison to her house. She made it to the attention of the, of the prison chaplain. And basically all that she wrote was, in fact, she wrote this. Dear inmate, I am a grandmother who love and care for you, who are in a place you had no plans to be. My love and sympathy goes out to you. I'm willing to be a friend to you and correspondent. If you like to hear from me, write me. I will answer every letter you write. A Christian friend, Grandmother Howe. The letter was passed on to the prison chaplain, who in turn asked if there was anybody in prison who would like to write to this woman. Eight people thought that they would, and they began to do it. And there were times where she wrote, uh, at the same time, to 40 inmates at once. She has written to hundreds of inmates. And what's fascinating about this is, she says this. She said, when I get a letter, I read it, and when I answer it, I pray. Lord, you know what you want me to say, now say it through me. And you'd be surprised sometimes at the letters he writes. <laughs> she goes on with these words of encouragement to another person who was involved in ministry. She said, Now you just keep remembering that the Lord don't need no quitters. She says, Once in a while, old Satan tells me I'm getting too old. Don't remember things good. Got to agree with him there. But we mustn't listen to him. First thing you know, have us all turned around every which way. So I just keep remembering what the Lord told me, and I can't quit. Quickly adding with a monetary gesture toward me, and neither can you. Says with that, Murdy Howe gave me her wonderful grin again, exuding the joy of life, lived to the fullest. We prayed together, hugged one more time, and I promised that we would see each other again, holding to that marvelous thought C.S. Lewis was so fond of that Christians never have to say goodbye. Number five, we can earn a reward by fasting before God without anybody knowing it. Matthew chapter 6, verses 16 and 17, we read these words. When you fast, don't look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show men that they're fasting. I tell you the truth, that you've received their, they, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to men that you're fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. The spiritual discipline of fasting had to do with the idea of taking aside time that you would normally take to prepare a meal, to eat a meal, to clean up after a meal, and dedicate it to a time of prayer before the Lord. Those who fast would make it very public to everybody. They'd walk around this, this old prune, prune face. Wow, there's a spiritual dude. What's going on in your life? I'm fasting. Yep, fasting. And they made everything public so everybody would know how spiritual they really were. And, and God's not mocked by any of that. He's not fooled by any of that. He said, hey, you know what? You want recognized by men. There's your reward. You've received it. You got a pat on the back. You got recognition by men. Blah, blah. There it goes. But he's saying, if you want to be recognized by God and you want to be rewarded by God, hey, then you know what? When you fast, and listen, a diet is not to be confused with a fast, Okay. Right, some of us would be like, yeah, I need to drop 20, so hey, you know what? God's going to reward me one day because I dropped 20 pounds. A diet is a diet, a fast is a fast. 
And a fast is specifically for the purpose of missing a meal so you can spend that time alone with the Lord in prayer and in study of the Word of God. It says when you do that. He didn't say if you do it. He said when you do it. Well, that's interesting. That he will recognize it. Number six, we can earn a reward by transferring assets from earth to heaven. And you say, now how in the world do you do that? Matthew 6, 19 through 20. Do not store up for yourself. And if you remember the context, this has to do with money. Don't store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourself treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And the point that he's making is, as God has blessed us with material things, invest those things in the kingdom of God and the things that God says to invest them in. And we are transferring from earth, we are putting them into an account that God has put aside in heaven. The interesting question is this. We hear people all the time debating and arguing over, uh, do you tithe on the gross or do you tithe on the net? And my answer to you is this. Do you want to be blessed on the gross or on the net? We need to recognize that that's the truth. You know, so many of us, the only way we give is if we're manipulated to give or made to feel guilty. Hey, you know what? Give because the Word of God says that we're to give. It's fascinating is we live in a consumptive culture, the headline scream of a society plagued by credit card debt. It's interesting, particularly when an area of young people, I read an article last week that the, the biggest problem of young people anymore isn't even alcoholism or premarital sex. The biggest problem that they have is credit card debt. We live in a consumptive society because we no longer teach biblical truth. And biblical truth is this, that we are not to be self-indulgent, but we are to practice self-denial. We are not to live for today and all that comes with it, but we're to use the resources that God has given us and He will reward us when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ. When was the last time you heard that clearly taught or spoken of in any context that you can imagine? We are to teach self-denial. The Word of God is clear. That we are to, to deny ourselves, to take up our cross daily, and to follow our Lord and our Savior. We are not to live self-indulgent lifestyles. We are to lower our standard of living and we are to increase our standard of giving. We need to understand that as uncomfortable as it is to hear it, and as uncomfortable as it is for me to even say it, and being convicted in my own life, and as I look at all the blessings of God, I need to recognize and understand that we need to, you know what, give more and live off less. One of the greatest articles I ever read was a guy who practiced what he called the graduated tithe. He said when he first became a Christian, he made a commitment to give 10% of all that God blessed him with back to the work of the Lord. He said as his life continued on, he continued to increase his standard of giving and lower his standing of living. So that by the time that he passed from this life to the next, he was living off of 10% and giving 90% to the work of the Lord. You say, ah, it's not possible. You know what? How would you know if you don't try it? So many of us, that's not possible. How do we know unless we try Test the Lord in some of these things and see if he's not good and see if we cannot adjust to what he teaches as truth. So many of us need to be manipulated. It reminds me of a story of a minister. He was preoccupied with his thoughts of how he was going to get after the worship service, ask the congregation to come up with more money than was originally expected for repairs to the church building uh, program, specifically the area of repairing their roof. And he was a little annoyed because the regular organist was sick and a substitute had been brought in at the last minute. And the substitute came to him and said, Pastor, what do you want me to, to play? He goes, well, he goes, uh, here's a copy of the service. You'll have to think of something to play after I make the announcement about finances. I don't have time to think about it. 
So during the service, the minister paused and said at the end, he said, brothers and sisters, we're in great difficulty. The roof repairs cost twice as much as we originally expected. We need another $4,000. Any of you who can pledge $100 or more, please stand up. At that instant, the substitute organist played the Star Spangled Banner. Uh, uh. And by the way, that's how the substitute became the regular organist at that particular church. Number seven, we can earn a reward by suffering abuse for what we believe. Matthew 5, 11 and 12. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Notice that. When we're insulted and persecuted and falsely things are said about us and all kinds of evil against us, not because we're idiots, but because we live to please Jesus Christ. He said, blessed are you when that happens to you. He says, rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. When was the last time when you saw a friend or a relative or a co-worker or a coach or a teacher or someone in your life who persecuted you and said evil things about you because you were a follower of Jesus Christ. When was the last time that happened in your life and when was the last time you felt blessed because of it? We're so concerned that people like us. We're so concerned that people like us that we throw out everything of importance so that we can be pleasers of men rather than pleasers of God. Blessed are you when you're persecuted and people say false things about you and they insult you because of me. Because your reward in heaven will be great one day. Obviously, all of us heard of the young woman in Colorado at Columbine High School. When the shooters came into the room and said, is there anybody here that loves Jesus Christ? If you're here, stand up. And she stood up and she was killed because of it. And she entered into the joy of her master. When the Christians were ushered into the Colosseum during the Roman days, and they knew they'd be put to death for their faith and trust in Christ. And the lions were in there waiting to devour them. It has been told that those who were in front of the line fought to be first. They fought to be first because they knew that death was nothing but a portal that gained them entrance into the presence of God. For absent from the body, we are present with the Lord to those who are in Christ. They didn't try to hide behind everybody else. They didn't run to the back of the line. They said, let me be first. Because I believe what God has to say. Blessed are those who are persecuted and insulted and abused and murdered for my sake. For they will be rewarded. They believe the word of God. And you know what? It transformed the way they lived their life. Number eight. We can earn a reward by pleasing God with our performance at work. It's no wonder that so many non-Christians have no desire to become Christians because they look at Christians and they watch the way that we work and conduct ourselves. They say, I don't want anything to do with that. Colossians 3, 22 through 24, Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eyes are on you to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence of the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Can you imagine what we would do in our workplace if we were the kind of people who are diligent and excellent at what we did? 
So that even when the boss wasn't looking or even when you felt like you weren't being recognized for the things that you did, even when you start, wanted to start just skating like everybody around you, that you were committed to being excellent because you served Jesus Christ and not the person that signed your paycheck. Could you imagine what we would do? We'd turn this world upside down. There'd be people that would be looking at our lives saying, you know what, man, if that's what a Christian's all about, I want to hear more about what you believe. But so often we're just like everybody else. We do the least amount and expect the most in return. We're interviewed for a job and we're looking for our retirement benefits and we haven't even worked a day yet. What's your retirement package? I don't know, I thought you might want to work for a little first. But we're buying into it because that's all that's around us. Do you realize that Jesus Christ one day will evaluate you for the excellence and the diligence of how you perform at your job? Wow. The question, I guess, is this. Do you always give your best? When nobody's looking, in those days you feel underpaid, do you always give your best because you are there to please the Lord? and not those around you. Number nine, we can earn a reward by showing kindness to undeserving people. I love this. You know, the Word of God is so practical. You notice what he says? He says in Luke 6, 32 through 35, he says, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Hey, let's face it. The easiest people to love are people that love us. You love me, I love you. I love you. No, whatever. <laughs> you know, I mean, they're easy to love people that love you. It says, if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? But you love your enemies. Do good to them. Lend to them without expecting anything in return. Then your reward will be great, and you will be the sons of the Most High, because He is kind to the ungrateful and to the wicked. You notice what he's saying? He's saying, man, you know what? When you love those who are even mean to you, he goes, then you're displaying the love of God that was found in Jesus Christ. And yet, while we were sinners, while we were mean to God, while we were in rebellion against God, while we didn't want anything to do with God, He still loved us and sent Christ to die in my place. Be kind, tender-hearted. What? Forgiving one another, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Be kind, and you will be rewarded by God in heaven. Be kind to those who are mean to you. You know, there's that bumper sticker, mean people suck. And you know what? But God says, love them anyway. Love them anyway. And you know what? And when you love them as God loves them, man, they won't have any choice but to drop on their knees and to thank God and receive Christ as their Lord and Savior. Number 10, we can also reward, earn a reward by serving God as a leader in His church. 1 Peter 5, 1-4, Peter writes to the elders among you, I appeal, you as a, I appeal to you as a fellow elder, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, overseeing. Not because you must, but because you're willing as God wants you to be. Not greedy for money, but eager to serve. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. You know, to take a leadership position and spend your life investing your life in the lives of others. You know, when you look at this and say, well, I can't be a leader in the church. Well, you know what, though? But you can still be obedient to this command, and it's very simple. Hey, are you investing your life in the lives of others? 
You know, we've got small groups here. Some of you don't know anything about it. But there are people that are investing their lives in the lives of others. And it's important to get involved in a small group. And I'll make this plea to you. And that's this. Coming here for one hour a week just isn't going to do it. It's not enough. We need accountability. We need fellowship. We need encouragement. We need to meet with one another and encouraging one another all the more as we see the day of our Lord's return growing growing near. And as we see persecution start to pick up around us in our culture, we need to recognize and understand we need one another. And so we've got small groups, and there's leaders of those small groups who are investing their lives in the couples that are coming to those groups. And I would encourage you, if you don't know anything about it, to stop and to see some of us, and we'll tell you about it, but you need to be plugged in. Why? Because one hour a week isn't enough. We're bombarded in our culture, and we come and think, well, I'm giving an hour of the week to the Lord. Hey, you know what? Do him a favor. <laughs> Number 11. And lastly, it's this. We can earn a reward by sacrificing self-interest to serve the kingdom of God. In Matthew 19, 28 through 30, I love this. Peter's great. Peter's my man. Peter's a guy I can identify with most. Peter just always asked it the way it was, said it sometimes the way he shouldn't, but he always learned and he was open and teachable. So there was some progress going on there. But he said, Peter answered and said, Lord, you know what? And this is after, basically, he was saying that there would be those who were blessed for following him. And Peter said, hey, yo, whoa, whoa. We've left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Jesus said to him, I tell you the truth, that the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. I don't care what investment you make, a hundredfold return is really good. And what's nice about it is, and it's at no risk. Now, I know some financial planners that if they could tell you that you can get 100 times your, your investment, you get 100% or 100 time return on your investment with no risk, you would call somebody to have them checked out. Because the greater the return, supposedly, the greater the risk. And that's the way it is in life. But you know what's interesting? The greater the return, the less of the risk in the kingdom of God. For God's ways are not man's ways. He chooses the simple and foolish things of the world to confound the wise. Self-sacrificing, our self-interest, living in self, a, a state of self-denial for the purpose of bringing glory to the kingdom of God will be received a hundred times as we stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Man, I want to tell you something about math, and I'm not a really good, I, I'm not, I've never professed to be really good at math. I don't even like math that much. But I know this about math. Zero times a hundred is Zero. Is that profound or what? Now, y'all sitting there like, what does that mean? Here's what it means. If you ain't giving nothing, you ain't getting nothing. See, now you understood that. But zero times 100 is still zero. The press went out to meet Mother Teresa in her work in Calcutta before she had passed away. And they asked her what she, you know, what she thought she would accomplish. And she said, basically, what I want to accomplish is that there would be those who would love and, and, and that we would love and be loved in return. That there would be a sense of love in this basic, basically forsaken place. And as always, you know, the press, their answer to anything, and Washington's answer to everything is, well, it must take money. 
And so they said, you know, what, what you're trying to do will require a lot of money, right? And her answer was simple. And she said, no, what we're trying to do here will require a lot of sacrifice. That's what it will require. Sometimes the easiest thing in the world is to write a check and not get personally involved, isn't it? You know, I talk to people that have a lot of money. And the easiest thing for them to do is just, oh, here, you need a check? Here, I'll just send somebody a check. No, that's not where it stops. That's part of it. And maybe part of it's writing the check. But you know the more important part? The more important part is giving of yourself. And as you look at these 11 things, you've got to ask yourself the question, because one day you'll stand before the judgment seat of Christ and you'll give an answer. And so as you look and you begin to ask yourself the question, you know, it's kind of like my meeting with those who own the company I work for. Hey, what was your return on our investment? What was your net profit? What were your receivables? What was your inventory turnover? What was your guidelines as far as selling expense? How did you do in all those areas? How many sacks did you get? What was your batting percentage? What was your slugging percentage? What was your fielding percentage? How many games did you win? Those are the things, objective things, by which we will be evaluated. You can earn a reward by entertaining and giving to those who can't reciprocate. You can earn a reward by assisting people who represent the kingdom of God. You can earn a reward by giving of yourself and your stuff without anybody even knowing anything about it. You can earn a reward by praying to God without anybody hearing it, being a prayer warrior, committed to pray. You can earn a reward by fasting before God without anybody knowing it, so you can set aside that time to spend time praying and time with the Lord. You can earn a reward by transferring assets from earth to heaven, by giving of the resources that God has blessed you with. God God says that you are setting up your, your account, so to speak, in heaven. You can earn a reward by suffering abuse for what you believe. Stop worrying about whether everybody likes you and worry about one thing and one thing alone. Be committed to this. And what I'm doing and what I'm saying is it pleasing in the sight of my Lord because nothing else will matter on the judgment day when you stand before the judgment seat of Christ. There will be nobody else there but you and the Lord. So you can't look for people around you and say, but they all like me. Oh, they're not there. You can earn a reward by pleasing God with your performance at work. Be committed and dedicated. Be excellent at what you do. You can earn a reward by showing kindness to undeserving people. People that you don't like. At least be kind to them so they can see the love of God in Christ in your life. You can earn a reward by serving as a leader. You can earn a reward by sacrificing self-interest. How you doing? If you went down through it and checked it off, uh, how's it going? Hey, one out of two, one out of three, one out of 11, two out of 12, two out of 14. Wait, there's only 11 here. You know, there's more actually. You know, we can earn a reward by sharing the gospel with people around us. There are all kinds of ways in which God will evaluate our performance in this lifetime. So in closing, I'm going to ask the question, and that's this. Ask yourself this question. What are my priorities? What are my priorities? I want you to consider something. Americans watch more than 50 hours of television a week, but devote less than five hours to volunteering to the needs of others. We're now working more than 47 hours each week, but spending only 17 hours with our families. And it's estimated that we pay nearly 10% of our income to interest expense, but only give 2% back to God and the work of the Lord. The question for you is this, how much is enough? How much is enough? It's important as we consider the judgment seat of Christ that we realize our Lord will not judge us on the results of our service. Listen carefully. We will not be judged on the results of our service, nor will we be judged on our giftedness. 
Why? Because he takes responsibility for the results, and he is the one who gives us the gifts that we have. 1 Corinthians 4, 7, what do you have that God hasn't given to you? So he will not judge us or evaluate us on those because those are all in his hands. What he will evaluate us on and what we will be judged upon is this, and this one thing, and catch it and understand it. You and I will be judged on this one thing. Our obedience and our faithfulness to the word of God. We will be held accountable and we will be asked, did you obey my word? When you clearly understood what was taught and you heard my spirit convict your heart, did you act as a wise man upon the word of God? Just like Murdy Grandma, Murdy Howe. Well, I didn't understand it, but I thought the Lord wanted me to write the prisoners. Never did it before, never knew any, but I really felt God wanted me to do it. So I did it, and I'm still doing it. And you know what? And one day she'll hear those words that we all long to hear. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Some of those people we would consider in our culture as heroes. But let me tell you something about heroism. Heroism is an extraordinary act of the flesh. But service to our Lord is an ordinary act of our spirit. For heroism, we are recognized and we are given honor and we are given glory. For service, Jesus Christ gets all of the glory and Jesus Christ gets all of the honor and he is worthy to be praised. Judgment is coming. We will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ and each one will give an account of what we did while we're in this flesh. And we will be rewarded and recompensed, recompensed by him, whether what we did was good or whether what we did was bad. If you believe it, live it. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. We just thank you for this truth. You've given us a lot to think about. But not only just to think about it, but to act upon it. Lord, you tell us that it's a wise man who builds his house upon the rock and acts upon the word of God. And we just thank you and we need to recognize and understand that these 11 things and many others that are found in your word are not the basis by which we will enter into the kingdom of God. It's our belief in Jesus Christ and him alone that determines our destiny. And we need to recognize and understand that so we're not confused by this, these things that we can do. These areas that we've seen today are areas that we can do subsequent to that decision, that, that prayer to accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior and to live a life that's worthy of the manner by which we've been called. It does make a difference, and your word clearly teaches how we live our life, and that we're to examine ourselves and make sure that we're really in the faith, and we look at the objective word of God, we look and see how we measure up against the backdrop of what you hold as a standard of truth. And God, I just pray for those who are here and listening that they understand that it's faith in Christ and in him alone that makes them right before God, and that their sins are forgiven through him. But I also pray for those of us who have come to that point of faith in our life that we recognize and understand that how we live our life subsequent to that day does make a difference and that there is a day coming where we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And Lord, I just pray that none of us are embarrassed at that day because you've clearly shown us the direction in which we need to head. So God, we just pray for strength to be obedient. We pray for, for, uh, for your presence in our life and to lead us in the direction that you want to lead us and that we can listen to the call of the Holy Spirit in our heart telling us what we should be doing in the areas that you find to be pleasing in your sight. And God, we just praise you and we thank you, not because we're some type of heroic person that will receive recognition here on earth, 
but because of what we do, that it's in obedience to you, that you will receive all the glory and all of the praise and all of the honor and will defer every, every ounce of praise and glory to you and that it will be an opportunity to share with others of your love for them and that Christ died in their place. God, help us to become people who live differently than our culture so that as others see us, they see the love of God in Christ that's living through our life. And we just praise you in Christ's name. Amen.